This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to one of our intermittently produced programs here at Radio Parallax. We do apologize, but we are facing some difficulties in our supply chain. Apparently, a couple of the scripts we were counting on are somewhere stuck in a containerized cargo vessel off the port of Los Angeles. And the case of Scotch, Mr. Millen has coming in from Edinburgh, apparently somewhere stuck in San Pedro. We're working on it. You know, we can still do a show without these things, but, you know, they, they help. And then we have quite a few beefs we're going to have to address on today's program, like this one. You know, I, I am so tired of people complaining about $7 beers $10 parking, $20 cover charge. I say, if you don't like the prices, stop coming over to my house. Our house is a very, very, very fine house with two cats in the yard like used to Anyway, thanks for posted that meme. I can't remember who it was. I think it was somebody I went to high school with. High school will be a recurring theme throughout today's program, probably the next couple programs, as we've been promising. And something you you know, if you're a regular listener to this program, and, and, and we certainly hope that you are, is that we frequently delve into the areas of obituaries, and we don't usually start this early in the program, because, well, I was thinking about high school and the fact that the following obituary ties in to my junior year U.S. history teacher who told me about a new band that had come to the Bay Area that he was completely knocked out by, and, you know, they were his favorite band, and he intended to go see them quite a bit in the near future. The band was Commander Cody and his Lost Planet Airmen. Does it ring a bell? Oh, it'll ring a bell. Mr. McMillan? My pappy said, son, you're going to drive me to drinking if you don't stop driving that hot rod Lincoln. story of the hot rod race with the Fords and Lincolns was setting the pace. That story is true. I'm here to say I was driving that Model A. Yes, the commander <laughs> and his Lost Planet Airmen had quite a strange novelty hit in the 1970s with Hot Rod Lincoln. Smoke, smoke, smoke that cigarette. One that I was believe called Down to Seeds and Stems Again and an X-rated one <laughs> titled Everybody's Doing It. We note with sadness the passing of the, the commander, real name George Frayne. He passed away at age 77 in September. Noted the Washington Post, Mr. Frayne and his band, the Lost Planet Airmen, created an original mix of country music, jump blues, rockabilly, and boogie that made them one of the most roguishly entertaining good time bands of their era. And yes, for further reference, we would refer you to YouTube, where you can find many, uh, many examples of the commander and his airmen. Although, in truth, I think he lost a couple of his crack musicians that were known as the airmen, and he went on for a while as just himself, Commander Cody. He appeared on David Letterman more than once. And I would note with some amusement, he spectacularly upstaged Day with a one-liner on one of the programs. Frayne's musical career was his second. He was originally an artist. His paintings, often featuring portraits of musicians, were exhibited in galleries from London to Tokyo. When he mentioned speaking with Letterman that he had originally been an artist, Letterman asked him, well, do you think if you'd stuck with that, things would have gone the same for you? Frayne looked at him and said, talking to you on national television? I don't think so. 
Anyway, when I first learned about the passing of, of George Freight, I, I recalled that day back in, in high school when Mr. Cavalia mentioned how fond he was of this new group that had come to the Bay Area. And at first, I thought there was a problem with this. Uh, they mentioned him coming out to the West Coast from Michigan in 1967, but not settling here until 1969. Then it turned out, well, actually, the numbers did, did add up. My uh, senior year social science uh, teacher, Mark Madeline, has been on this program a couple of times and will be on again. When I couldn't reach Cavalia to, uh, to ask him about uh, his forward promotion of Commander Cody back in the day, Mattingly enthusiastically seconded that, oh, yes, we went to go see those guys, and they were hilarious. It is my hope that we can flesh out some of those descriptions in a future program by bringing the both of them back on. Well, back in the case of Mattingly, for the first time in the case of Cavalia, I think this will be a lot of fun. When we do this, we'll talk politics, no doubt, as well. I know that Jerry Cavalia mentioned back in the day that he was a great admirer of the legendary American socialist Eugene V. Debs. And I, too, find Debs to be a fascinating character that we, we should talk about. I hope we'll do that. When you run for president and you're a prisoner in the federal pen and you still get 900,000 votes, well, that's a guy, that's a guy you just got to look at. He found himself in prison in 1920 uh, for his violations of the Espionage Act. Debs had spoken out forcefully against the U.S. entry into World War I, and at the time, that was made illegal. The Supreme Court even weighed in on it and said, well, in times of national emergency, you know, that old First Amendment thing, you can sort of put that on the back burner. Something I think we're still grappling with a century later. And isn't it amazing to look back one century, 1920, and realize that was the first time women got to vote in the United States of America? Another aspect of high school I'm going to shoehorn into this program is the fact that um, I went to school with a rather distinguished author. In this case, Robin P. Williams, who first made a name for herself years back when she wrote The Little Mac Book. Apparently, Macintosh Computer had not thought ahead to put out a, a how-to-do-it kind of book to assist the person buying their product. Robin filled in the gap, and several dozen books later, is still at it. There's a good chance we will invite her on this program to discuss a book she wrote in 2006 titled Sweet Swan of Avon. It's subtitled, Did a Woman Write Shakespeare? Robin is a very succinct writer and manages data well, as you might expect from someone who's quite a computer virtuoso. I find much to like about this book, although in the end I still remain in the Oxfordian camp. We spoke some years back to Mark Anderson, the author of Shakespeare by Another Name, and uh, remain firmly convinced that it had to be the Earl. However, I must say, Robin has dug up some very interesting facts about her candidate for the Shakespeare authorship, which is Mary Sidney Herbert, the Countess of Pembroke, who lived from 1561 to 1621. I must confess to not being as up on the topic of Shakespeare as an artist as I might be. I, I've, I've only attended a couple of his plays. I, I find him pretty tough going, frankly. But I was stunned uh, several decades back when I discovered there, there was a controversy over the authorship of these great works. And, you know, although I mentioned on the program several weeks back, it, it was such a great line that I, I have to recycle it. At the reunion, Robin was explaining her theory to other classmates. And being the kind of guy I am, I couldn't resist interjecting. I think it was the Earl of Oxford. 
To which Robin looked at me and apparently accurately replied, you said that at the last reunion. And uh, shucks, I guess I did. She's a very bright lady. She's written a very interesting book, and I hope that we will discuss it further right here on this very program in the weeks to come. I also want to put a nod out to Angie and Sherry, two of the classmates who managed to get Robin's book into my hands. Thanks, guys. You know, I'm not quite ready to leave the topic yet. Thinking about this, I pulled out a, a book from my shelf titled Essays and Sketches of Mark Twain. Apparently, when he wrote his autobiography, he devoted an entire chapter to the Shakespeare question, which he, which he titled, Is Shakespeare Dead? And since it's Twain, I can't resist quoting a bit from it. He opens the second part by saying, When I was a Sunday school scholar, something more than 60 years ago, I became interested in Satan and wanted to find out all I could about him. I began to ask questions, but my class teacher, Mr. Barclay, the stonemason, was reluctant about answering them, or so it seemed to me. I was anxious to be praised for turning my thoughts to serious subjects when there was another boy in the village who could be hired to do such a thing. I was greatly interested in the incident of Eve and the serpent and thought Eve's calmness was perfectly noble. I asked Mr. Barclay if he ever heard of another woman who, being approached by a serpent, would not excuse herself and break for the nearest timber. He did not answer my question, but rebuked me for inquiring into matters above my age and comprehension. I will say for Mr. Barclay that he was willing to tell me the facts of Satan's history, but he stopped there. He wouldn't allow any discussion of them. In the course of time, we exhausted the facts. There were only five or six of them. You could set them all down on a visiting card. I was disappointed. I'd been mediating a biography and was grieved to find that there were no materials. I said as much, with the tears running down. Mr. Barclay's sympathy and compassion were aroused, for he was a most kind and gentle-spirited man, and he patted me on the head and cheered me up by saying, there was a whole vast ocean of material. I can still feel the happy thrill when these blessed words were shot through me. Then he began to bail out that ocean's riches for my encouragement and joy. Like this. It was conjectured, although no established, that Satan was originally an angel in heaven, and that he fell, and that he rebelled, and brought on a war, and he was defeated and banished to perdition. Also, we have reason to believe, he notes in quotes, that later he did so-and-so, and, quote, we are warranted in supposing, end quote, that at a subsequent time he traveled extensively seeking whoever he might devour, that a couple of centuries afterward, quote, as tradition instructs us, unquote, he took up the cruel trade of tempting people to their ruin with vast and fearful results. And that by and by, quote, as the probabilities seem to indicate, unquote, he may have done certain things. He might have done certain other things. And he might have done still other things. And so on and so on. We set down the five known facts by themselves on a piece of paper and numbered it page one. Then on 1,500 other pieces of paper, we set down the conjectures, the suppositions, the maybes, the perhapses, the doubtlessness, the rumors, the guesses, the probabilities and likelihoods, and the we are permitted to think, and the we are warranted in believing, and might have been, could have been, must have been, and unquestionably's, and, quote, without a shadow of a doubt, unquote, and behold. Materials, why we had enough to build a biography of Shakespeare. Yet he made me put away my pen. He would not let me write the history of Satan. Why? Because, as he said, he had suspicions, suspicions that my attitude in this manner was not reverent, that a person must be reverent when writing about sacred characters. 
He said that anyone who spoke flippantly of Satan would be frowned upon by the religious world and also be brought to account. I assured him in earnest and sincere words that he had wholly misconceived my attitude, that I had the highest respect for Satan, and my reverence for him equaled and perhaps even exceeded that of any member of any church. I said it wounded me deeply to perceive by his words that he thought I would make fun of Satan and deride him, laugh at him, scoff at him, whereas in truth I had never thought of such a thing, but had only a warm desire to make fun of those others and laugh at them. What others, he asked. Why, I said, the supposers, the perhapsers, the might-have-beens, the could-have-beens, the must-have-beens, the without-a-shadow-of-a-doubters, the we-are-warranted-in-believingers, and all the funny crop of solemn architects who have taken a good solid foundation of five indisputable facts and built upon it a conjectural Satan thirty miles high. Mr. Barclay was so shocked that he visibly shuddered. He said the satanic traditioners and perhapsers and conjecturers were themselves sacred, as sacred as their work, so sacred that whoever ventured to mock them or make fun of their work could not afterward enter any respectable house, even by the back door. How true were his words and how wise. How fortunate it would have been for me if I had heeded them. But I was young. I was but seven years of age, and vain, foolish, and anxious to attract attention. I wrote the biography, and have never been in a respectable house since. Mr. Millen asked if I read... Uh, Samuel Clemens's biography of Satan, but no, I think that since he wrote it at age seven, I think it's been lost to posterity. All right, speaking of smart ladies, as we were a moment ago, concerning uh, the good work of Robin P. Williams, I'm, I'm holding in my hand last week's Parade magazine, because on a regular basis, we seem to find ourselves quoting from Marilyn Vos Savant, reputedly the world's smartest woman. Juan Perez from Dayton, Ohio, wrote Maryland to ask, well, the rest of the world uses kilometers, we use miles. They use meters, we use yards. Why don't we stop using Fahrenheit and convert to Celsius? Said the world's smartest woman, because Fahrenheit is so useful for everyday life. It wasn't designed for that purpose. But on a human comfort scale, 1 to 100, it makes sense intuitively. We know 0 degrees Fahrenheit is extremely cold for us, and 100 degrees Fahrenheit is extremely hot. And between those poles, Fahrenheit has 100 gradations for better description. Celsius? That same extremely cold is 18, negative 18 degrees Celsius, and extremely hot is about 38 degrees Celsius. Familiarity with the range doesn't help us in a meaningful way. I vote for Celsius to stay in the sciences where it makes more sense. Mr. McMillan? Yes, I say happy days are here again and vote with Marilyn Vos Savant to keep Fahrenheit on the weather report. If you've been to other nations, and, and I, I've been to quite a few, and you watch their weather report, you too will note that, you know, saying, well, pff, it's going to be hot tomorrow, maybe 37, just doesn't have quite the same ring as triple digits. When you hit 100 degrees, which is just above our body temperature, you know it's hot. In fact, it's generally too darned hot. Now, make no mistake about it. I'm a big fan of the metric system. If you've ever taken a course in physics, <laughs> you, you will know how valuable it is. Chemistry, too. Anything in the sciences, you, you want a scientifically based system of measurements. But in everyday life, wouldn't you, per, per, wouldn't you prefer something that's more accurate? And yes, Fahrenheit is more accurate. 
A degree of Celsius represents a range of almost two degrees in Fahrenheit. And yes, you can start splitting hairs and getting down to the tenths, but who's going to do that? Not me. Well, okay, I will for body temperature, okay? But I'm not going to go outside and say, oh my God, look, it's 30.5 degrees outside. Instead of saying it's 87. Okay, enough said. Well, no, actually not enough said. Some years ago, a rather sneering and snotty uh, person weighing in on Facebook weighed in on the notion of how stupid we were in America to still use miles instead of kilometers. The metric system was so much more logical. The metric system was so much more logical. Well, sometimes yes, and sometimes no. On an everyday kind of basis, would you prefer to use kilometers per hour, the kilometer being one ten-thousandth, the distance on the Earth's surface, if you start at the pole and you walk to the equator and you go through Paris, France on the way, that distance works out to 10,000 kilometers. So if you take that figure and divide by 10,000, you've got your kilometer. You can measure your speed in kilometers per hour if you're so inclined. I would prefer to stick to the mile, which was based on a thousand paces of a Roman centurion. So happened yours truly had a job back in college where he had to pace off a quarter mile and then dig a hole for soil sampling, looking for, I guess, gas wells. I, I don't I, I think that's what it was. I found out I paced off 250 paces per quarter mile, meaning I pace 1,000 paces per mile, just like a Roman centurion. Now, your results will vary, but I am going to stick with the Romans. Anyway, since we're starting off the show with extreme frivolity, I think we might take this moment to jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, at least the last couple issues of Same, it was a good week this past week for Zoom with the news that Jeff Bezos, Prince Albert of Monaco, and an estimated 400 luminaries flew to the COP26 climate summit in Glasgow on private jets, spewing out millions of pounds of carbon dioxide in the process. It was, on the other hand, a bad week a couple weeks back for what robocalls have done for all of us with the news that after a hiker went missing for 24 hours on Colorado's highest mountain, ignored multiple phone calls to his cell from a rescue team because he didn't recognize the number. After the hiker turned up safe, search authorities in Colorado advised people who get lost in the wilderness to please, please answer the phone. Mr. Merlin is going to put this guy up for an honorary Darwin Award, though he did not die in the process. And earned himself, therefore, a true Darwin. I think an honorary Darwin is, is, is warranted. I agree. And it was an ugly week recently for health care in America with the news that an Atlanta woman who walked out of a hospital emergency room after seven hours without treatment has now received a bill for $700. Taylor Davis, who had a hand injury, said that no one even called my name during the wait. But in an email to Davis... Emory Healthcare authorities confirmed the charges, explaining, you get charged before you're seen, not for being seen. Now, as a physician, I have to say, well, that's, that's pretty, uh... All right, let's do it. Let's do a second round of those. It was a good week recently for 
None of the above. After the United States issued its first passport with an X gender designation, the State Department said it would add a third option on gender for all applicants next year. And, and no, we don't quite understand that either. Uh, there's going to be a third option, but the third option is not X. Wouldn't X be none of the above? I, I don't know. I'm quite, I'm quite lost on this whole topic. But then I'm a biologist. When people try to tell me that gender is just merely a social construct, well, I have to again say, Yeah, I know it's a complicated matter, but I, I, just, I'm, I'm going to leave it there. And instead, note that it was a bad week. In fact, it was a truly terrible week recently for Prophecy after hundreds of QAnon followers showed up at Dealey Plaza in Dallas, the site of JFK's assassination, because of their predictions that the late JFK Jr. would appear there and announce that Donald Trump was being reinstated. The crowd, some of whom wore Trump Kennedy 24 t-shirts, did trickle away after a few hours and there was no resurrection of the late JFK Jr. from a watery grave. Like you, dear listener, I am baffled at how anybody out there takes these communiques from Q and QAnon and, and, and regards these people as reality-based. Actually, i got to take a minute on this. Let's just suppose for a minute that JFK Jr. had faked his death. I mean, God knows there, are, there have been people in history who faked their death. We don't think JFK Jr. is one of them, but let's just say maybe he did. And let's just say the democratically oriented son of the late 35th president had decided to come back and re-enter mainstream society. One has to ponder why it is he would choose the site where his father was murdered to do so. I mean, let's face it, there's plenty of other options. Why not the lobby of the Trump Plaza Hotel? Why not the entry gate at Mar-a-Lago? Why not Napa State Mental Hospital right here in California? And speaking of stupid decisions, we would note that it was an ugly week a couple weeks back for Florida's new Surgeon General who refused a request that he wear a face mask in the office of a state senator undergoing breast cancer treatment. State Senator Tina Polsky, who is starting radiation therapy, says that when she made the request of Florida's Surgeon General, Joseph Landapo, who is, by the way, an outspoken skeptic of both masks and vaccine mandates, he just smiles and doesn't answer, she said. When Polsky told Ladapo of her, quote, very serious medical condition, unquote, he replied, that's okay without donning a mask. So she asked him to leave, to which we say, good. And finally, we don't know whether to categorize this as a good week for or bad week for efforts to improve marital relations. But here's the story. A 30-year-old man on house arrest in Italy found living at home with his wife so miserable that he begged police to put him back in prison. The man, described as an Albanian living near Rome, walked into the local police station and confessed to intentionally breaking the house arrest he was under for drug crimes. He told the police captain, listen, my domestic life has become hell. I can't do it anymore. Jail is better. And Italian police obligingly sent the man who had several years left on his sentence back to prison. 
Anyway, I guess the basic theme for this segment today is goofy, crazy stuff. And, and, and in keeping with that, I have the following fascinating article. Well, I find it fascinating in its perverseness and stupidity. Down at UC Santa Barbara, billionaire Charlie Munger is bankrolling the design of a massive dormitory for the campus. It's a $1.5 billion project. Now, if you're going to spend that kind of dough, you know, I think most universities would welcome the help of a billionaire. Now, it turns out that Mr. Munger, the 97-year-old vice chairman of Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, previously has donated money to help build graduate residences at Stanford University and the University of Michigan. And he's donated $200 million to UC Santa Barbara, of which his grandson is an alumnus, to fund these new dorms, with the caveat that his designs are followed. He wanted the dorm rooms to be tiny and windowless in order to encourage residents to spend more time outside in the common areas meeting other students. And yes, apparently 94% of the dorm's bedrooms are in the interior of the building and thus have no windows. Reportedly, the Santa Barbara Independent has reported that the consulting architect on the university's design review committee quit in protest of the project and in a resignation letter obtained by CNN Business said, the basic concept of Munger Hall as a place for students to live is unsupportable from my perspective as an architect a parent, and a human being. In the letter, he said Munger Hall doesn't reflect the beachfront location as an integral part of the campus culture and identity. You know, so what if you've got a beachfront location, you have a spectacular view of the Pacific Ocean? The article on this noted that in addition to being Warren Buffett's right-hand man, Munger is an amateur architect with uh, no formal education in the field. For his part, Munger told CNN Business, Architecture is a field where tastes vary, and everyone thinks he's an expert, and no two architects ever agree on anything. Well, maybe, but uh, Dennis McFadden, a legitimate architect, did write in his letter that the population density of Munger Hall would be slightly lower than that of Dhaka, Bangladesh, one of the world's most densely populated cities. He notes there are only two points of entry and exit. Calling the fire marshal... Anyway, we'll try and follow the story to see whether stupidity prevails. Mr. Brown does point out that, you know, any student worth his salt can certainly pull up pictures of the ocean over his computer screen. And speaking of stupid housing decisions, and how's that for a segue, it turns out that the good people at Zillow have a bit of egg on their face. Zillow, of course, invented the Zestimate. This is a machine learning-assisted estimate of a home's market value that is calculated by taking into account Oodles of data about property gathered from sources like tax and property records, homeowners submitted details such as the addition of a bathroom or bedroom, and pictures of the house. Perhaps you've used Zillow to get a guesstimate of what the value of a a particular property may be. Now, real estate professionals have pointed out that there are many unquantifiable aspects of putting a price tag on a house, like the value of living in the same neighborhood you grew up in or or being down the street from your parents, etc., But Zillow was pretty confident they knew what they were doing, and they've been buying up houses all across America, driving up real estate prices, I think with the goal of making everybody in America a renter. But what do you know? Using their Zestimates, they found that they were buying houses at too high of a price, which they can no longer sell at a profit. Last week, Zillow announced that the company was taking a $300 million write-down in the third quarter which, and I love this reporting from CNN, it blamed on having recently purchased homes for prices 
that are higher than it thinks it can sell them. I'm not an, I'm not an economist, but I'm pretty sure buy high, sell low will not work out in the long run, or for that matter, the short run. I don't know what to what degree Zillow is responsible for this crazy inflation going on in home prices, but uh, uh, CNN did report that it had purchased 27,000 homes from April 2018 through September 2021 and sold only 17,000. Anyway, the CNN Business uh, article by Rachel Metz was titled, Zillow's Home Buying Debacle Shows How Hard It Is to Use AI to Value Real Estate. And I'm sorry that in my disgust, I tossed an article that I saw a couple weeks back in New Scientist magazine about AI, which was somebody's confident prediction that they would be able to use AI in the future to correct the mistakes made by AI, to which we say, well, maybe, maybe. Anyway, we got to take a short break. Let's do that. And I can't think of a better way to segue into this than the work of the immortal Commander Cody and his lost Planet Airmen. Listening to Radio Parallax, I'm Douglas Everett. We got lots more. Don't go away. I'm a guy with a heart of gold, the ways of a gentleman. I've been told the kind of guy who would never harm a flea. But if me and a certain character met the man who invented this cigarette, I'd murder that son of a gun in the first degree. Now it ain't cause I don't smoke myself, and I don't figure it'll hurt my health. Me smoking for 25 years ain't dead yet. But them nicotine slaves, they're all the same.